Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Servant leadership is a philosophy and set of practices that enriches the lives of individuals, builds better organizations, and ultimately creates a more just and caring world. So says the Robert Greenleaf Center for Servant Leadership. Robert Greenleaf is supposedly the inventor of the servant leadership model, but I think it goes a lot earlier than that. This definition sounds really nice, uh, pretty idealistic, and it's the first result that pops up when you type servant leadership into Google. Um, The idea is that the leader, the boss, the manager, or whatever authority serves their subordinates and thereby teaches them how to cooperate rather than coerce them. I think we have a pretty inherent understanding of this style. We're Christians. We have the ultimate servant leader in Christ. With that in mind, let's read today's sermon text. John chapter 13, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles there. Or open your favorite app. I'm going to read all of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you 
will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, will you let your word dwell inside of us? May we see Christ Jesus on display today as our Lord and Savior, and may we learn what to do as a result of knowing him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So a little context. Our sermon text is from John, as you can see, and John has a unique emphasis around the time of the Passover. There are differences in all the Gospels, and John is a little bit different from the rest of the synoptics here. The synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, They have differences among themselves as well, Um, but let me describe maybe the difference between the synoptics and the Gospel of John by analogy. The Gospel of Uh, I'm sorry, the Synoptic Gospels are a little bit like a Ken Burns documentary. Maybe you've seen Jackie Robinson or the Roosevelts. Um, What Ken Burns does in a documentary is he takes a span of all the events and facts and and spreads them all out for you to see each one and kind of evaluate for yourself and make value judgments based on every little bit of evidence there really is on that topic. Let's compare that with John, which is maybe a little bit more like supersize me. Maybe you've seen the Morgan Spurlock documentary where he eats McDonald's every day for 30 days, um, ends up getting pretty sick. And the idea is, you know, he's still following the events and the facts of what's going on in real life, but there's a very clear message that he's trying to get across. He's got an agenda, right? And John is a little bit more like that. Um, Not that John is trying to get you to see how uh, McDonald's food isn't really all that edible, but what John is trying to do is to show you who Christ is. Not just give you the events around Christ, but Christ is Lord. Christ is God. So it's a book of Christology. Now, 
There's some commonalities between the synoptics and John. Uh, they all have the idea of Judas's heart being hardened and the foretelling or prediction of Peter's denial. Um, but in this gospel, there's no real focus on the institution of the Lord's Supper, for example. You remember the first Holy Communion taken in the upper room. Instead, we have this story of humble service. This is the end of Jesus' life, and Judas was, you know, already on the slippery slope. And in Luke 22 and in Matthew 26, we learn that the chief priests and scribes were already seeking for a way to execute Jesus and looking for a way to kill him. Now, we have this story of servant leadership. Maybe it'd be better to call it servant lordship in our case. And I don't have a three-point sermon for you today, I apologize, but uh, I've already been rebuked for that one time. I have three themes uh, that you will see throughout the course of our exposition of uh, John 13, so you can reference those if you like. But the idea is, through this story, we learn precisely who Christ is, what he is going to do, and what we are to do, and how we are to live in light of Christ's being and acts of humble service. Let me boil that down into just a single little statement. Knowing Jesus changes how we live. Okay, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus' earthly ministry here is coming to a close. Those he would be healing in the world, he had already healed the demons he would exercise were already cast out. The discourses that he would say, like the Sermon on the Mount he had already spoken, and the towns that he would visit, he, would, he had already traveled to. And so since this was already the end, he knew that his time with the disciples was running short, and whatever would happen from here on would be some of the most memorable material to them as they went out into their ministry. Then verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So all things had been placed in Christ's hands. It's been God's plan eternally uh, to give all things to Christ. This is no surprise to him. This is known as something called the pactum salutis, if you want some cool Latin words to repeat to your friends. Um, the pactum salutis is the idea that the Trinity, in eternity past, decided that they were going to redeem mankind. And so you know, they embarked on this plan, and this is the point at which Jesus realizes that all things are in his hands now, and he can march forward to his death on the cross by which he would redeem humanity. No surprise there, this timing was expected to Jesus. And later in John, we see what it was that Jesus was given by the Father. Let me read for you uh, from John chapter 17. Uh, chapter 17 is what's known as the high priestly prayer. This is where Jesus prays to the Father. So it's a little bit of almost inner Trinitarian communication going on, and we get a clue into that. So let me read from chapter 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And then a little bit lower in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So it's all of those who believe who the Father gave to the Son, the totality of all believers, 
also known as the church, right? And then look at this. Look down at the end of what I just read, um, or I guess listen to this, that they may be one even as we are one. I find this interesting that Jesus bases the idea of church unity on the fact that he and the Father are one. It's the fact that the Trinity exists and that Jesus is part of that Trinity that the church is to be unified. We follow that example. Now, there is no similar oneness that we can ever represent. The Father and the Son are more one than we can ever be, right? Even I myself am not singular like the Father and Son are singular um, in the Godhead. What I mean by that is I'm, I'm body and I'm spirit, and at some point when I die, my spirit is going to go to heaven, my body is going to remain in the earth for a time, right? I can be separated. Eventually, the resurrection will happen, the ultimate resurrection when Christ returns in my body and spirit will be reunited. But that can't happen with the Father and the Son. The Father is fully in the Son, and the Son is fully in the Father. And this is the, the, the spawn of the unity of the church. That's why we say when we recite the Nicene Creed, there's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. So knowing that Jesus is triune, it changes how we live. We're to be one as a church based on Christ's oneness with the Father. And then also more ultimate things were given to Jesus by the Father as well, right? We read that in Ephesians 1. Let me read that to you. He worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So ultimately at the resurrection, Christ was given all things, not just believers, but authority over everything. And the interesting thing about that is that this is the same Christ who washes the feet of the disciples. It's the man with authority over everything. He can, he can command the disciples to go wash their own feet, right? He can do anything he wants to, and yet he, he acts humbly and in service toward the disciples. This is servant leadership, right? The God-man who has authority, not over a company, not over a country, but over everything, washes the muck and the grime and the dust away from the men who call him their Lord. It's crazy. And we can sympathize with Peter's confusion when he says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And even a sentence later, he rebukes Jesus when he says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Oh boy, Peter. <laughs> Peter, you just don't get it right often, do you? Uh, Remember Matthew 16 when Jesus tells the disciples that he's going to have to die in order for his mission to be accomplished? Peter pulls Jesus aside and he says, Jesus, what are you saying? You can't do it like that. And what does Jesus say in response? Get behind me, Satan. Right? Peter just doesn't get it. We're going to come back to the foot washing because there's more significance here. When Jesus says, afterward you will understand, we need to pay attention because at the time the disciples hear this, they don't have all the data yet. So we're going to come back to that once we have a little bit more data. For now, let's look at verse 13. Since Jesus is the teacher and the Lord, the Son of God who just washed their feet, Jesus says, I am the example to, fo to be followed. So first you need to know that Jesus is Lord. 
then you will be blessed if you follow in that example. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? Let me read a couple quotes from James uh, when he says similar things. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. And again, he says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, James is all about this indicative imperative contrast. You have to have faith and then do works as a result of that. But in John, Jesus is the indicative and the imperative. Jesus is the Lord. He is the one. And he's also the example to be followed. Jesus gives the faith and he gives the works to do. He describes believing and he describes the doing. And it's all grounded in the fact that first he is Lord. Let me maybe give an example. Um, if I came in and uh, I decided to sit down and wash Pastor Bob's feet and then say, Bob, I need you to go do likewise. That would have, you know, maybe some authority because it was a, an act of service in and of itself. But if Obama came in and washed our feet and said, now go do, and like, do likewise to your fellow citizens, some of you might say, about time, Obama. No, I'm just kidding. No political messages here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> but we might have a little bit more authority born on us, right? We might say, okay, because Obama did that, he has the authority to kind of command us around a little bit more, doesn't he? It's all the more important when Christ does this for us, who is our Lord, who created us. And this is confirmed in verses 34 and 35. Let me read those again. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, right? Our example of love for one another is to be an external reality for the world to see. Now this is talking about love within the body but it can be externalized as well. Let me talk about that for a minute. So unity or love for one another, it's for our sake, right? It's for the sake of the church. It follows the example as we just saw in John 17. It follows the example of the Trinity. Um, so it's, it's good for Christians, but it's also good for the world. There's an external side to this. Love should mark us for the sake of evangelism. The, the message of the gospel becomes more appealing when the church lives out that gospel in unity. So as a result, we should do what uh, Jesus tells us to do here and honor those who are lower than you. If God stooped, God himself, Christ, stooped to wash the feet of humanity, we should be all the more willing to wash the feet of those who we despise most. Let me give a negative example. It, it's another political one, but I think this one's a little less controversial. Uh, Within the last couple of weeks, we had both the Republican National Convention and the Democratic National Convention. And it really is not appealing to me to be a part of a, a political party that when one leader um, kind of bows his place for the other leader to rise, that he receives booze for that. That's not unity, and I don't want to be a part of that. And in a similar way, on the other side, when uh, one leader doesn't want to even endorse the other leader because he doesn't trust him. I don't want to be a part of that either. We can see the disunity. It just doesn't help your cause at all. So we need to be 
radically loving more than political parties are. Let me give some specifics for us as Christians. Unity. Let's talk about the Baptist debate. Uh, we're infant Baptists and we have our reasons and those are you know, too long to list in this sermon, but guys, Baptists are gospel-believing Christians and we need to have fraternal relations with them as much as possible. Even more so, Catholics. They're going to, praise God, they're going to be Catholics in heaven, believe it or not. It's awesome. I'm excited for that. And I've read a ton of uh, articles and books and blog posts by Catholics and I'm convinced that they know the gospel. Sure, we have our differences and we get some things right that they get wrong and they get some things right that we get wrong. But we're all Christians. We all believe the gospel and we need to show our unity rather than our differences first. Another way is through uh, race. I'm really thankful that this last summer at General Assembly, this denomination, the PCA, actually voted on a referendum that uh, corporately confessed their sin of racism in the past. And I think it shows great unity if we're willing to reach out to those of other ethnicities than us. Listening to outsiders is a big thing. Um, there's a woman who goes to our church in Philadelphia who works with transgender individuals. And she had a hard time kind of accessing that community, but would just continue to go to them and listen to them. Finally, she was allowed access to them to be able to share the gospel uh, because she uh, defended some transgender people. Um, uh, but here's the main point that she said. She said the thing that was the biggest complaint of the transgender community toward the church was not systematic hatred. It wasn't violence. It was that the transgender individuals couldn't find a place to safely take communion. They want faith. They want to repent. But there are too many times where we're wanting to keep them away. So we need to be willing to humble ourselves and just listen for a little while before we just immediately put up our walls. Another way to show unity is uh, with married and single folk, um, especially with adults. I know at seminary as well as here, I've got adult friends, um, and they need friendship of married people. Um, it can be a really lonely world out there when you don't have a spouse. I'm thankful to have been married for five years as of yesterday. And married, so we married pretty young. And so I will have companionship for a really long time. But many people don't have that. So married people, invite single people into your home. Another way is kids and no kids. Uh, people who have kids, they still need to date, right? Um, married people with kids, they need to love each other and have some time away from their kids. So those without kids maybe especially single people without kids, babysit. It's easy. I know that Nick Dodge, uh, who is a friend of most of us here, uh, he was willing to uh, babysit kids just so that uh, other people's parents could go out on dates together. And I think it says a lot about our unity when he's willing to make that sacrifice. Knowing Jesus changes how we live. But for Jesus, let's go back to John 13, there's still some work to be done. Work, as it turns out, that would lead him to the cross. There was still scripture yet to be fulfilled. There were still divine promises for Jesus to keep. So, just like a prophet, Jesus foretells his own betrayal so that when it does go down, the disciples might believe in him. So in order both to fulfill Psalm 41.9, which Jesus quotes, and to take another step towards his ultimate goal of the cross, Jesus gives a morsel of bread to Judas, and Judas walks out. 
to find the man whom he would turn over Jesus to. In a bigger picture, uh, Jesus is fulfilling another prophecy. He's taking a step toward fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah. Let me read for you chapter 53 of Isaiah, verses 3 through 5. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So this fulfillment leads to death for Jesus. And his death would accomplish something magnificent. That chastisement has brought us peace. So with all that in mind, Jesus' fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment in the cross, we need to look back at the foot washing. We have all the data now. Jesus earlier said to Peter, what I am doing you do not now understand, but afterward you will understand. Afterward? After what? Well, first let's contrast this with John chapter 12. Just one chapter before our passage here, Mary came in and anointed Jesus' feet with expensive perfume. And he even said, no, she's doing the right thing. But here the table's completely turned and he's down on his knees wiping off dirt from their feet. So afterward, we need to look at the historical perspective of John. John wrote some details in this that I don't think he would have really paid attention to if he had written down this gospel before Jesus' resurrection. Namely, the towel wrapped around his waist. Simple thing. It's a small detail. But as Christ rinsed the dirt off the disciples' feet, he wiped them with the towel that he had worn like a garment. Christ removed the dirt from the feet of the disciples and it became a stain on Christ. Now, in John 13, it's just a symbolic action. There's nothing transformative actually going on. But it pointed to a spiritual action that he was about to perform on the cross. For John and for us, the time of the symbol is over. The time of the spiritual reality is now. This is the afterword. Now we have understanding. He wants, John wants you to read this story and know that spiritual cleansing is offered to all. In verse 12 it says, do you understand what I have done to you? And it's tough for the disciples to answer. They hadn't seen him resurrected yet, but it's easy for us to answer. And I wrote down, it's easy for us because Bible. Um, let me read for you what the cleansing meant from 1 Corinthians 6.11. This is Paul. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Washed, sanctified, justified. All these terms apply to salvation. Our record was cleansed, wiped away, our record of sin. We were made holy. We were credited with the holy life of Christ. And we were justified for all time. And again, Titus 3, 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now this washing of regeneration and renewal, this is a continual washing that we are still being washed with. It's born by the Spirit. It's made possible by Christ. It's sanctification as we grow day by day into conformity with Christ. Now, today, we are to live holy, upright, humble, submissive lives. Not in our own power, but in the power of the spirit of cleansing. This is all because of Christ's lordship, his servanthood, and his sacrifice. Knowing Jesus changes us to live that way. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful. We're thankful for Christ's lordship over all things. We're thankful for the example he's set before us. God, we know that you've done all the saving, but now we have work to do. We have an example to follow, and we ask that you show us the works that you would have us do. We ask that these works are on display, that the world might see how much the church loves one another. And by this, Lord God, would you expand the kingdom? Would you convert sinners to yourself? And would your name be proclaimed by every tribe, tongue, and nation? We pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.